We can't kill the boogeyman. Well, I can't kill the boogeyman. Oh my god, it's getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, more than once in throughout the course of Halloween, he commented on the sex scenes. That was quick. The teenage boys, that's really unfair. Also, they died um, really quickly. Oh, that was quick. At least they got the bang one out before they went. Exactly. You're listening to Cinepunk, interactive discussions for film lovers. This episode, you can't kill the boogeyman. So, you're welcome back. This is, I think, officially our second season, because we took an unexpected break over the summer that sort of dragged on for... A few more months than it was meant to. Um, but we're back now, uh, so I should reintroduce ourselves. Uh, I am Robert J. Simpson. I'm joined, as ever, by... I'm Dr. Rachel Kelly. And I'm plain old Ben Simpson. Plain old Ben? Plain old Ben. Is there another kind of Ben that we can have? Um. <laughs> no. No? Just plain Ben. Um, so, yeah, tonight we are uh, marking a significant anniversary... It is, believe it or not, 40 years since John Carpenter's Halloween came onto the silver screen and changed the face of horror cinema forever, I think. Um, it's not the only thing that's 40 this year, though. I don't know what you're talking about. Dr. Kelly's not very happy at the moment. This has made her feel very old. I'm younger than Halloween. Just. By a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Is that kind of weird, going back and watching something like this, that that actually is as old as you? Well, do you know what was actually weirder? Was watching it again and realising that that makes it 20 years since Halloween H2O came out. That doesn't feel like 20 years ago. Do you know I still haven't seen Halloween H2O? I wouldn't bother if I were you. I feel like I've, I've, I've sort of missed big chunks of the series uh, over the years, although I have caught up with most of them. Again, uh, I wouldn't bother. Well, apparently we now don't have to, because there's a new film coming out it retroactively knocks all of the other continuity out the window, which I think is probably a good thing because I think the purity of that first film, um, I don't, now this is going to sound ridiculous talking about the sullying, the purity of that film, but there was a kind of a um, something very sort of unique about it and um, very stripped back, very kind of essential that just worked. And I'm sure that's, that's the secret of its success. Um, and by kind of building onto that with ridiculous angles it, it it almost kind of takes away from the original doesn't it yeah i think it probably does i mean it was a ridiculously low budget film that mm-hmm. went on to phenomenal box office it was about three hundred thousand dollars is what it cost to make and it made 70 million worldwide which is phenomenal i mean you can see why they kept on going with that that series Although, I suppose the good news is that for the last few years, the, the series has been in the hand of the, the, the Weinsteins, and it's no longer with them. Mm. So, yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a retrospectively weird thing. I'm sure we're going to get back to this theme again. Ben, this was your first time watching it? It was. I am a Halloween virgin. No oh, longer. Oh, that's that's too bad. You're not safe anymore. Mm-hmm. When the killer comes, you got to be a virgin to survive on Halloween. Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> Look at his wee face. He's just so worried now. It's just like you never know what's going to happen tonight at the end of the podcast recording. Um, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to sit in front of this computer and twiddle knobs for a bit. This is, I think, the problem with everyone in Halloween is they spend all their time twiddling knobs. And if they didn't, maybe they would live. 
Yes, and isn't that one of the key, well, it's certainly one of the key criticisms that's been levelled against Halloween and it's completely founded. Um, I'm going to go right out there and say that. Halloween is a profoundly misogynistic film. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. Um, I am a gender theorist. I look for this stuff when I watch. I can't not look for this stuff. Um, and it doesn't necessarily spoil my enjoyment. I mean, Halloween is innovative. It's uh, daring. It's bold. It's extremely entertaining. It does hold up in a lot of ways, but it has a woman problem. Yeah, it does a wee bit. Um, I want to get Ben's thoughts before we get into this too much, because this is your first time watching it. So what were your impressions of the film? Mediocre. Mediocre? At best, yeah. You had a big grin in your face when you finished <laughs> watching it there, which we don't often see on Because it was so, so cheesy. Okay. Like, it's, it, there's, like, that's a good Stilton right there. I think it probably hasn't, it, it doesn't compare to modern kind of gory See, slasher. That's the thing though, I don't really enjoy that kind of movie. I, I don't enjoy mm. th- like slasher movies or, you know, grotesque murder just for the hell of it movies. Mm. I, I don't enjoy watching that kind of thing. So this, I was going into it going, I'm not going to like this. This is going to suck. Um, like, it, I suppose it's not the worst one, but, you know, it, it, it's definitely no, uh, well, the room. <laughs> uh, I'm I glad you said that because nothing will ever top the room for sheer cinematic awfulness. Uh, something. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's okay. It's, it's an okay movie. Like, I, I, I can't really relate to see why it did so well, but, you know, maybe, maybe it's just because I'm not from that time any you know could be i mean i guess if if you know what you're used to is is sort of um something that's a faster pace that's got more going on that's got more effects then maybe something that's really stripped back and and it's it's, it's about mood more than anything else might be a, a something I, there's a few things going to come back to you specifically about later right. on right. because i hope you do have opinions on some of the stuff i did like the the starting scene the one back in 1963 Yes, and I'd forgotten that that even existed. How in the did film. you forget I that existed? No idea. It's actually one of the most. Um, I mean, it's one of the key sort of innovations that kind of the the movie popularized. Everybody was doing that after that. What early prequel bits or you, no, the, no, the first uh, person perspective? First person perspective. Well, this is one of the things I, I had completely forgotten about that whole sequence of the film. Um, yeah. I don't know how. I don't know why. It's not like I haven't seen this film dozens of times. But it just completely went from my memory, I think, because I'm so caught up with the stuff that happens in Haddonfield contemporaneously. The sort of prequel stuff is just, it's just not as, um, it doesn't resonate or doesn't stick in my head in the same way. Well, let's, let's go back to the misogyny, okay? Because I want to get this, let's beat this beast out. Um, is that the turn of phrase you're really going to use about that? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get worse from here. Good. Yeah, good. It's, it's beast, it's, it's, so uh, the misogyny, you, you feel it is deeply uh, problematic with women. Well, the slasher genre in general is deeply problematic with women. Um, horror in general is deeply problematic with women. And that's before we even get into issues of women of colour. Um, it, it has... Well, there are none in this. There are none in this, no. <laughs> there, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's like a horror film made, made in Northern Ireland. There's not yeah. one person of colour. Not at all. No, Which not is... even walking down the street. 
Which you couldn't do now. Yeah. I mean... No, because you'd, you'd have to put somebody in there to get killed, um, which is kind of still very much the function of the person of colour in, in the horror film. Mm. I mean, they, they, I, anybody that's trying to argue that these are politically correct films is going to have a really hard time doing it. I mean, they exist so that um, they, this kind of... Uh, sadistic gaze can be satisfied where you can watch somebody be terrified and murdered um, there's such a lot of work done on why that's pleasurable and I mean I watch these, I enjoy a horror film um, and I am watching myself watch it Yeah, what, what I'd like to kind of tease out of you um, is, is that what exactly is the issue here with, I mean how is this being misogynistic towards women specifically um, I mean, d- d- so just remember. I mean, not all, all not all of our audience is is well versed in gender theory or or kind of all these concepts. So it's like, let's let's bring it back and explain why it is this the problem. Well, oh dear. Okay, I would have to go straight into all of the the that, that male gaze and Laura Mulvey and and the spectacularization of the female body being brutalized, and it's particularly the female body that's brutalised and there's been all sorts of studies done of slasher films um, and the amount of time the camera spends over female Mm. deaths and female terror versus the amount of time it spends on male deaths and male terror. Now yeah, definitely there's a guy gets killed in this. Uh, Several. Well, okay, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Bob gets killed and the guy in the truck gets killed. Um, who's our other guy that gets killed? I didn't see the guy in the truck getting killed. We didn't see the guy in the truck getting killed. It's just passed over. Um, oh, but you see, so his, you do, yeah, yeah, you see his. So you see his body. Um, you see a little bit of his body. There's no spectacularization of that body, whereas the body of Annie is actually <laughs> laid out ritualistically on the bed. We get to watch her every sort of squirming and groaning as she dies. Likewise with Linda, mm-hmm. um, and we spend. Most of the final act focusing on Laurie's terrified face as she cries and whimpers. Um, it's spectacularization of female terror and and um, violence against women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of at the heart of the slasher film. I suppose this is it's partly because... Not not trying to excuse them, but there is also the reality that these are, are exploitational films. Mm. And so that, that exploitation cinema has always relished in, in sort of the exploitation of the female form. Yes, and it's, I mean that's, if we're, again, we're going back to Mulvey here and we're talking about the male gaze um, and the idea that the female form within cinema exists to be looked at and women watch themselves being looked at whereas men do the looking. Um, I, I think we would take more than an hour where we'd go over all we'll, of we'll the this in visual a, pleasure in narrative show, cinema. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you follow this, Ben? Because I'm very aware that you're kind of our voice of the audience sometimes. Do I follow uh, <laughs> <laughs> any of the last five minutes? Any of the last five minutes? Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you think about sort of the films that you've watched in in your entire life, I mean, how often do you see a naked female form, or certainly female breasts on, on screen? Not very often. Not very often. No. Wife doesn't let you watch those. Well, like unless you're like watching Game of Thrones, where there's tits all over the show, and but this is sort of the point. I mean, like, you'll probably find that most films, even in a mainstream film, there's usually a sex scene somewhere, and the woman is usually undressed, and you do see a pair of breasts at some point, a well, lot of the time. I, well, Sorry. I, I'm guessing that's because they can't go full hardcore porno on, no, but on you, your ass. How often have you seen a full frontal male? 
a handful of times. I mean, when you compare the two, the, the, the men just don't show off their naked bodies on screen in the same way at all. It used to be a truism. I don't know if it's still the case, but the fastest way to get your film either banned or sort of X-rated was to have an erect penis on screen, whereas tits, go for it. Well, they're just lumps of skin, like, with well, nipples. Well, yeah, but so is a penis. You know, free the nipple. Yeah, but he, no, he Nobody wants to free the fucking penis, like. I Sorry. Mean, well, that's, that's not necessarily true, but the other side of that is that actually you don't even have to have an erect penis. I mean, you don't see penises on screen. Um, which is why there's that glorious moment in Life of Brian where Brian opens up the window and he's standing, and Chapman's standing there and they all together. And it's just like, this is a wonderful relief because... Well, the comedy of that moment is entirely rooted in the fact that you're not expecting to see a penis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is part of the problem of exploitation cinema. And this is, it's, it's not even just that this is a slasher film, this is exploitation cinema, really. Even if it is, I think, quite well made. Yeah, um, and it has its roots in exploitation cinema. I mean, it's, uh, is it fair to say that Halloween invented a new genre? Probably not. It's it's following on from a sort of a, a long existing uh, tradition of films where women get brutally murdered. Um, it's certainly the next. I mean, it's, it's it, it sort of instigates the golden age of the slasher film. Mm. Um, but it has its roots very firmly in this this long tradition of films where spectacularized violence against women was the main draw and why you went to see it and it was part of the um, advertising and and it was it was part of the appeal but um, the the reason why that is is that not because back then there was a mentality that women uh, were weak and defenseless Actually, kind of almost the opposite has, has been argued for Halloween, um, in yeah. that it's, it's a commentary on um, sexual promiscuity amongst American youth. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is a sort of social kind of... You still have... That still exists, this idea that women are the, in inverted commas, the fairer sex, uh, and therefore, you know, you, I think part of the problem, part of the reason these films function the way they do is that you have the women to be in peril, Ultimately, so you can have some bloke coming along and save them and, you know... It's kind of the whole sort of the, the, the trope of the final girl is kind of predicated on the fact that, well, yes, she will survive, probably because she hasn't had sex with anybody, but she will survive um, in as much as the guy rides into the rescue and finally sort of saves the day, ultimately. Um, she can rescue herself well, so far. Well, the, the guy at the end there that... Does the rescue, and you can hardly call him like a knight in shining armor, you know? You know San, what I mean? Sam Lemus is is, uh, is is played by Donald Pleasance. is quite inept in many ways. Um, I, I think part of that's probably Pleasance's characterization. Uh, you know, he's an odd. He just plays it very strangely and very slightly stilted, and he is slightly powerless. He's a man grappling to try and take control of a situation well, as well out of his hands. He's petrified. Yeah, because he knows what. I think because like he, he knows, knows what's yeah, going to happen. He knows what, what your man's capable of. But the thing is that none of the adults in that film are in any way um, helpful or useful. Or no. uh, there there is a conspicuous absence of oh. adults. This is the complete absence. So where are the parents apart from Annie's dad, who shows up and does absolutely bugger all to help anybody? Um, Do. Where's where's the? I mean, at one point, Laurie goes and bangs on the door and screams, "Help! Help! Help!" And they look outside and they go, "Nope!" And they turn the light off and off she goes to be murdered. Um, the the only people coming to help in this are teenagers or children. Children, yeah. I mean, it gives a lot of, of power to 
to the little kids. Yeah, I mean, right. it's not just Donald Pleasance, Sam Loomis, it's rubbish in this. It's, it's all the adults. They either let guys loose or fail to do anything about I it. I saying that, the wee kid. Look, the boogeyman, I saw the boogeyman outside and then he just gets dismissed. Yeah, I mean, so in many respects, actually, the younger you are, the more um, you need to be listened to. Yeah. Um, mm. Because that, the little boy, Tommy, um, knows what's going on right from the start. I mean, he can see what's happening. He can see that this creature is here, that this person is here that shouldn't be there. And he voices the threat that the boogeyman... Yeah, but it's only our final girl who's able to kind of contextualise that threat. She's the only person who's able to realise the, the threat and the form that the threat takes, which is why she gets to survive. Yeah, although I do feel like she only recognises the threat because she sees all her friends mauled and there's a big knife coming over her. Well, no, she recognises that, that something's up. I mean, she sees Michael Myers, she's watching Michael Myers from a distance and nobody believes her. Oh, yeah, very early on in the film yeah. as well, yeah. Yeah, he see, she sees him watching her. Um, and everybody just goes, oh, Laurie, you're so crazy. You're so sexually repressed that you're seeing things. Wow. Um, again, <laughs> the connection between sex and death in this is quite interesting. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the whole sort of final girl trope, which I find very interesting. Um, um, it's, it's all part of being the only person who is like one step behind the audience in realising what's going on, contextualising it, and that's what gets them to survive, and their plucky resourcefulness. I have a... Uh, did you ever watch The Candyman? Yes! yes. Clive Barker. Yeah, very kind of similar, almost in a way that your man has supernatural powers and can't die. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems that way. Mm -hmm. um, well, the Candyman is very definitely a supernatural entity. Yeah, you know he has to be summoned. Um, yeah, Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. Oh, don't do that! <laughs> oh, don't! That freaked me out for ages after I saw that film. I was at a tender age. <laughs> Someone's not sleeping tonight. No, I'm not. Or looking in a mirror ever again. <laughs> quick, quick! Um, um, let me you, use this DVD. No, don't, it's not you're a DVD. so mean. Uh, it's um, a game. Um, do you think that was kind of influenced by Halloween? I think horror generally, I mean, any horror film that's made in the 1980s really stems from Halloween. It it changes a lot of the way that stuff stuff works. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, well, that said, obviously you've got different kind of uh, types of horror going. I mean, this is the era of the video nasties as well, which are a very different kettle of fish. Yeah. Um, but they have their foot in the same kind of yeah, ultimately. stream, don't they? I mean, that's they 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 come from a similar kind of. But they're more extreme. Oh, they're, yeah. they're, they're 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 literally throwing as much blood and guts and tastelessness on the screen as they possibly can. Yeah, but bear in mind that most of well, not most of the slashers, but certainly that was a key element of a lot of the slashers. That fought. I mean, Halloween is is remarkable in its restraint. I mean, yeah, was, I did, thought it was quite tame. It wasn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah, I mean, there's only the the occasional splash of artfully painted corn syrup um, you, you really see very little gore very little violence and very little blood and hardly any penetration yeah because while you see the knife being lifted see, and going down you see down, this jerking off action with the knife but you don't actually see the, the knife going into the flesh no um, even whenever Laurie penetrates his neck with the, the knitting needle which is yeah. a, a very mm. good little old lady kind of weapon to use um it, you still don't really... I mean, that's, that's, a lot of that shot is in darkness. Mm -hmm. So it's not glorifying the blood. No. Um, 
And I think it is presented, he's very much presented as a, as a real intimidating threat. And it, it is this thing about self-defense and trying to, to defend yourself against a home invader almost. So horror films in, in, in sort of the 80s, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think they do kind of draw a line from this. And I think horror still does. Um, although obviously there's other things that are going on now as well. Uh, I don't know if you saw It Follows. Yes, that no. was absolutely terrifying. That still has the capacity to send a cold shiver down my spine when it, I remember it out of the blue. So It Follows is another film I deeply recommend. It very definitely is hugely inspired by, by um, John Carpenter's film, although it flips the whole idea of sex around um, because basically the only way to survive... Yeah, it's, it's just it's, to it's have a shag. Yeah. <laughs> what? You've got to pass it on by shagging somebody else. Basically, it's a demon that pursues the the last person that well it, it it's passed on like almost like a sexual tra- sexually transmitted disease so once you have sex with somebody that the demon has followed um it passes that on to you and if you don't have sex again before the demon catches up with you then it is going to basically shag you to death cool sounds awesome it's really not <laughs> some of the most disturbing scenes in that film but again, it's very simple. I mean, it's essentially, you know, uh, it's a figure slow. <laughs> if you never, I mean, the concept of a figure slowly walking towards you, that's the threat. And that yeah, doesn't, it doesn't run, it just walks. So you can out, outdrive it, which it, is convenient. It, it means it's a very regulated, very slow pace. And this doesn't sound at all frightening, but actually it is. Mm. Um, it's 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 a terrifying film, but it, it, it very definitely is inspired by the visuals of Carpenter and the style. I mean, Carpenter's Halloween is very much about open landscapes, about space, about eeriness. He makes suburbia seem really, really creepy. It's also about sort of teenagers and and what constitutes loss of innocence in a teenager, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But anyway, sorry, I'm distracting, I'm sidetracking. Uh, one of the things I think we have to talk about mm-hmm. uh, is Mike Myers himself and his his, his appearance. Mike Myers? Yeah, Mike Myers. <laughs> Not Michael Myers. I know. I, I, I know. Comedian and and film actor Mike Myers. <laughs> Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things about Michael Myers that we should talk about is Michael Myers' appearance. Yeah. William Shatner mask. William Shatner mask. Yeah. Whoever thought Love Captain it. Kirk would be so fucking scary? Yeah. Is that and what it is? A, yeah. yeah. That's a uh, Captain Kirk mask sprayed kind of bluish white with the eyes cut out. Serious? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a Star Trek fan, I wholeheartedly approve. It feels like right now we've got a, one of those little memes. They're like, "I just found out Halloween mask was a was a William Shatner mask." My mind is blown. Well, it's not blown. No, just like wow, that doesn't even look. It's another remotely yeah. similar. It's another. They had no money, so what could they do? So the guy went down to the local costume shop and bought it for like two dollars. Spray painted it and cut the eyes out. <laughs> And it's really scary looking, isn't it? I mean, it looks yeah, like well, dead flesh. Well, whenever the guy gets uh, the mask sort of taken off in there and he mm-hmm. uh, puts it, like he stops what he's doing to put it back on. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the deal with that? Um, yeah, um, the, the the humanity of the monster beneath. or I, I, I mean, that's why I always sort of read it. Sure, was, even whenever he was killing mm-hmm. his sister at the start. Mm-hmm. He sees the mask. He puts the mask on. I think the mask is is probably. Um, I think we could read the mask as an allegory. I guess it 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 it's sort of us putting, trying to deny our ourselves and our responsibility. If you're putting on the mask, you're being somebody else. If you're somebody else, you can do whatever the fuck you want. 
that's how I take it. Okay. Um, I, I, to be honest, it sort of seemed like it was almost whether sort of within his head or in reality, the, the, the source of his kind of immortality with the mask on, he's the monster and the <laughs> monster is unkillable. You take the mask off, there's a human underneath that, the human that he's been trying to escape for the past well, I guess 21 years. I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't kill until he's six, but um, that that's doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, that's that's just a high Is he immortal? What's his deal? Uh, it's <clears throat> supposed to represent the uh, fact that evil is unkillable. Right. Okay. There is something, I think, particularly <clears throat> creepy about the fact that it is Shatner's face. I mean, this is the face of a hero. This is the face of somebody that is loved by generation. And very, very recent at this point as well. I mean, yeah. Star Trek was, wasn't was long off the air. Um, probably still on reruns, wouldn't it have been at that I point? I thought so, yeah. And the motion picture was on its way at that point. Oh, gosh, it's really bad that I can't remember exactly when the motion picture came out. I want to say 79, but I could be I want to say 79, yeah. So, I mean, Shatner's face itself is, is not the face that... It's not the face you would associate with... Um, sinisterness it's, it's you know it, that in itself adds an extra level of weirdness it's, it's it's sort of again i think with the idea of suburbia the suburbia is very familiar i mean even, even sort of where we're recording tonight you walk around the streets around here it's not a million miles removed from from haddonfield in terms of appearance i mean this is a sort of our local version of it um so that's familiar so there's always something quite sinister about things happening in a place that you know and you recognize and deem as safe and shatner's face is a safe familiar face so when you see that coming towards you it's not immediately what you're going to think of as you're going to kill me i'm assuming that was deliberate or if it wasn't it's a wonderful serendipity what the the fact that it was just that that safeness about you know um i'm not actually sure from what i know about the film i'm not sure that that was a consideration. Um, the it was never specified in the script. I mean, there was a, a discussion of what the mask should look like in the script, but as far as I know, it was just literally that was what was available in the shop when he went in with five bucks <laughs> of his, his costume budget. Why did they have so little budget? Um. At this point, Carpenter's only really made a couple of films and they weren't that expensive. Uh, I think Assault on Precinct 13 was the one he made before this and it was only $100,000 budget. So he'd had three times the budget of that to make this one, which for a director is you know, a significant increase in terms of what money you got to play with. Um, but I think... So they hadn't pr- he hadn't proved that you know he could spend a lot of money and get a big return on it. it I don't think anybody ever expected this to get the return that it did. Um, and that's adequate for making a film that's sort of, you know, you make a, there's a practicality, but you make a film for a low budget, you've got a better chance of making some money back on it. Mm-hmm. And unless you're doing a tax dodge, you kind of want to make a bit of profit. Yeah. Because that's how you make more films. I yeah. mean, it was quite canny. It just so happens that they hit on a phenomenon with this. Uh, and once they'd made one, they wanted to make more because you repeat a, a formula that works. Yeah, Hollywood has never really learned about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you either you do one of two things. You have a sequel or you do a remake. Or if you're uh, Sam Raimi and you make an Evil Dead, you do both at the same time. If you're Halloween, you do both. <laughs> so I don't know. How familiar are you with the rest of the series? I um that was the first and only one I've ever seen. That's your uh, properly 
popped cherry tonight. Yes, yeah. pro- properly. You okay. can pretty much avoid the rest of them, to be honest. Uh, Halloween 3 is good. Halloween 3 is very different. Season of the Witch. Don't know if I've seen that one. Um, that's the one with all the... Uh, it's a really catchy, irritating tune, which... Uh, oh, I, nothing like the original, then? No, it, it's actually nothing like the original. It was uh, Nigel Neal was responsible for it, um, <laughs> who uh, was perhaps more better known for writing Critter John Carpenter was a huge fan. Uh, of Nigel Neon got them to do this one um, but they basically it, it, it's a completely different lineage it's a different chronology it's a different setup entirely he had this notion that what they would do was have films set at Halloween in different kind of uh, almost like an anthology I guess rather than having this one set of characters that you went to over and over again um, but it is so different it is well worth having a view if you've never seen it before and it's all about this this, this factory that's producing these Halloween masks that seem to have a, an eerie quality to them Um there's a really catchy tune, which, providing I've got any sense, I'm now going to stick into the podcast right here. You guys aren't going to get it. You're going to go, what the fuck? Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? But I'll do it for the listeners. Got to do something for the listeners. Fuck knows they put up with us. Um, you didn't catch the remake? Uh, the, the No, the Rob Zombie remake? Yeah, the I Rob Zombie 2007 I very remake. much did not do that. No, no. I no. watched it this week for the first time. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Rob Zombie, but it does have Malcolm McDowell. And I like Malcolm McDowell a lot. Yeah, it's it the, the remake, the, the zombie remake, basically takes the essential story, but it gives a lot of reason to why Michael Myers is the way that Michael Myers exactly. is. Exactly, I I knew that about the story, and I'm I don't need that. No, he's much more scary when we have no idea. Um, and Donald Pleasance talking about this black-eyed evil is really chilling. I don't need to. It's like when Charlie and the Chocolate Factory gave us reasons why Johnny Depp, Charlie, or Willy Wonka wanted to run a chocolate factory. I don't care. I don't need to know. It's because Chris really said you should need Tweeties. Exactly. Because it'll rot your teeth. That's it. (laughs) It just, it removes. It's, it's this sort of idea of, of um, you need to know this stuff about your character when you're writing the character, but your audience doesn't need to know it. Um, Don't, put it there you're it's not strengthening the character it's weakening the character which is probably the problem with the franchise as a whole is that they've given us so much exposition over the years and you can see now why in this upcoming film or probably out now as listeners are listening to this why in this new film they, they have just ignored all that character development over the last 40 years because it's made the whole story far more convoluted it's it's limited them because you have to the promo continuity is you have to keep on uh, paying credence to the continuity, you, you get caught up in it. So, is this new one going to be a complete reimagining? No, apparently, no? Um, it is literally set forty years in the future, and it's back with Laurie and Michael Myers. Does it ignore H two O? Apparently, it ignores everything after the first Halloween movie. Good, because I did not like what they did with her in H two O. I really need to watch H two O. So no, we can you have really a conversation don't. About you this. really don't. Honestly, you don't. I mean, it, it's a scream cash in, basically. Ah, well, now you've mentioned scream. No, I've mentioned scream. Yes, have you seen scream? No. Yes. Ah, you've seen scream. I have. You didn't like scream. You did no, like scream. I don't like th- those kind of movies. No. Hopefully, you may if you, if you catch scream again, you may realise that a lot of what Wes Craven's doing is parodying and paying homage 
It's more paying homage. It's the um, it's paying homage. Yeah, definitely. Still, he runs in that movie. The in, killer in Scream. Yes. Yes. I think he does. No, he does. He chases after people. Yeah, but the, it, to stab them. It's a slightly different kind of setup. But what he's doing is he's playing with some of the tropes that are established by Halloween, and it's uh, you know the, the, those films yeah. that took. I think that's what I sort of mean in when I, I talk about Halloween has in some ways aged very well, in some ways it really hasn't, because anybody watching Halloween today has probably seen Scream. And once you've seen Scream, you cannot watch Laurie do everything wrong <laughs> without going, don't run up the fucking stairs! Um, because Scream kind of so neatly dissects and, and deconstructs and pulls that all apart and says, these, these are the rules. And you go, yes, of course these are the rules. We've all seen um, horror films. So watching Halloween post-Scream is a different experience. Mm. Yeah. You see, I was lucky. I saw it as a kid, so... It, yeah, so did I, yeah. It, it was- <coughs> well, like, you know, whenever the when Laurie locks herself in the flipping closet, I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing, yeah. You went over to the window... He didn't even go near the window. He just went straight for the cupboard. Well, I mean, she sends the kids into the bathroom with a glass door, which, having seen this guy, you know, kind of doing (laughs) the things that he's done, clearly is not going to be any kind of obstacle to him. No. Um, But I think that that is, again, her... I guess that's her innocence. Is is it her youth? It's just that you... Or is it just actual fear? Is one of you... You're so concerned that you actually can't think straight... And you'll do the first thing you can do, which is just this barricade ourselves up against a wall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think that's certainly relevant. I mean, it's not; it doesn't make for good uh, drama when people react the way human beings would probably react. I mean, just you know, um, because you might sort of jump around and go, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? There's a mad murderer here. What am I going to do? I don't need to see 15 minutes of somebody doing that mm. while trying to lock every window of the house and, and, and repeatedly phone the police and you know, hold their mobile phone aloft looking for signal, mm. uh, which is what we would probably do. At least I hope I would. I, I consistently score really poorly and would you survive a zombie <laughs> apocalypse test. So there's an excellent chance that I'm probably, you know, one of the first to go. Should anything like Scream or or Halloween ever happen. Um, It's just, uh, these days, seeing her be that helpless is just a bit annoying for a modern audience because we we are conditioned to to know the rules for how you survive these things. Yeah, uh, I guess I I, I sort of don't agree a bit because whilst she does sort of flounder and and seem a little bit um useless she does gradually start taking control bit by bit and and she fights back she does fight back of course yeah that's not fight or flight you know well i mean the first thing she does she actually protects the kids she gets the kids out of the house and down the street to somewhere else i mean she doesn't and she doesn't do what i think a lot of people would do which is stay with the kids she trusts the kids to actually take care of themselves to get somewhere safe she realizes that they're not really probably the target of the threat now we're getting all into this this sort of sacrificial mother trope as well which is again i would argue the reason she gets to survive because she is performing appropriate femininity by the hegemonic standards of the time i'm sorry i've made everybody hate me who heard that but i stand by it could could you say it again for people who are not academics okay so what she's doing is (laughs) behaving in line with how women are supposed to behave um, at that time. And I would argue not a lot has 
changed that much since then. So she, it, it's expected of women to be maternal and nurturing and to put the children ahead of themselves. And Laurie is the only person in the only woman in that um, that that film that actually that. yeah demonstrates yeah. any kind of maternal concern. Where are the mothers? Where are the adult figures? And the other two, well, you know, Annie can't be bothered with Lindsay at all. Annie finds Lindsay an, a, an irritation. She's getting in the way of having sex. Um, Linda isn't even affiliated with children in the slightest. So that is part of the female problem in Halloween is the fact that one has to behave appropriately as a woman in order to be allowed to survive. Or she's being paid to be the babysitter and look after the kids. And she's doing her job. Yeah, she's, she's probably, doing her job. She's probably getting one fifty an hour. You know? I don't know. I, I reckon she's getting money off her friend too because she's taking the two kids on board and she's agreed to do that so they can... I don't think bonk. Annie was planning to pay her for that. I don't know. Well, maybe her payment was here. I set you up with this boy. Well, that's right. She did say that uh, she's going to have to speak right. to the boy to kind of undo yeah. that whole thing. Yeah. Even though Laurie really likes him and he is established as liking Laurie, I didn't really understand why we have to be that virginal, Laurie. I th- they're teenagers. I mean, your your head is uh, certainly as a teenager for me. My head was all over the place. I had no idea. Yeah, but if my friend went to the boy that I liked and 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 found out that he liked me too, I'd have been all over that shit. I, I still can't. Mind. I'm in my mid-30s now. <laughs> Stop showing off just because you're in your mid-30s. I still think that she's just being a babysitter. And she said to the kids, who were frightened because of the boogeyman, um, nobody's going to get you tonight while I'm here. And she delivered. She, well, she, she, does, she, she does. She made good on her promise. Just although by the end of the film, she is as childlike as they are. You know, where she's sitting there whimpering, talking to yeah, well, to Lumis a- about how it was the boogeyman, wasn't it? Yes, it was the boogeyman, or something. Yeah, the professor's in it. Who wrote that? <laughs> um, it's a combination between Carpenter and his then girlfriend Deborah Hill. Well, they need shot. Uh, she <laughs> apparently she wrote a lot of the the dialogue for the girls. Yeah, um, based on her own experiences of babysitting, apparently. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. this is this is obviously a problem where psychopathic killers frequently turn up. And, and, and I did a lot of babysitting as a teenage girl myself, and it was never an issue for me. What about the sex? Oh, it was never an issue for me either. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh- <laughs> Uncomfortable. I know. Sometimes I'm sure, never sure. Do I take this conversation further? Or, like no. you know, friend, really? friend, and professional boundaries. It's just do, like, <laughs> do you actually have that internal monologue? I've never noticed it before. <laughs> Can we talk about the the cast? <coughs> yes, let's talk about the cast. Let's talk about the casting of Jamie Lee Curtis in her first f- feature film role and what a coup that was. Mm. Who? Laurie. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So Jamie Lee Curtis, who? Well. You're you're already familiar with her family, whether you realise it or not, Ben. Thanks to Cinepunks. Yes, we've we have watched her father in a dress. Do you remember the film Sam Nugget Hot? Two dudes in dresses. One of them marries a man <coughs> in the end. Marilyn Monroe. Girls on a train. I didn't see it. That was the one I didn't watch. Oh, that was the one you didn't watch. Oh, okay. You should really watch it. So now he's got to fuck that whole bit out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry. Have you seen Psycho? The original one, not the remake. Nobody should see that. Psycho? American Psycho? No, no, no. Psycho. Psycho, Psycho. Psycho. In the shower no. scene. 
Well, yeah, I've I, okay. I've seen the shower. I've scene. seen the shower scene. That's her mom. Here's Johnny. No, that guy? that's The Shining. That's, that's The Shining. That's the shining? <laughs> yeah. Right. No, the one Cut that gets that stabbed at the shower, that's, that's Jamie. No, no, we're, we're going to keep that stuff in. <laughs> Listeners, we have a lot of education. Well, how many show. shower scenes are there in freaking horror movies? Well, those are the two main ones, actually. Well, the shower, there's only one that's Psycho, the, the thing that you've got in um, what The Shining. Psycho? That's a, that's Is that door. the one with the, the guy with the, the, the hockey mask? No, no that's Friday, Friday the 13th. <laughs> what the? <laughs> right? Oh, dear. See, I don't, I don't like this kind of movies. No, well, I mean, Psycho is a, is a classic kind of... It's a classic Hitchcock. We are going to come to Hitchcock at is some point. Is that the one point. with the leather? No. No, uh, no although, te- although, actually, it's the same story that were inspired by okay. Psycho and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I know. I'm keeping a tab on it. Um, so, yeah, the same storyline influenced Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho. They are basically the same story. Right. But Psycho's better. Um, but we'll come to that. We're, 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 Does he dress up as anything? Is he dressing anything? What in Psycho? Yeah, I I feel that we're, we're we'll, we will come to Hitchcock at some point during this run, and we'll let you see it because I, I, I want to get your reactions just for the first time. It's more fun. <laughs> okay, I can't believe. So, okay, so you haven't seen Tony Curtis, and you just about know who Janet Lee is. Well, okay, Janet Lee's the one that gets stabbed in the shower, right? In, in Psycho, right? And that's Jamie Lee Curtis's mum. Okay, mm-hmm. so whenever they were casting, they they couldn't afford to put like a. An experienced, like a uh, famous person, a famous person in this role. They'd blown the budget on Donald <coughs> Pleasance, um, who was cheap. Who was cheap as well, yeah. Um, so they were looking at all these different actresses, and along came Jamie Lee Curtis, who had had a small role in television. I think she was she was a famous enough face from television at this point. Um, but they realised they had Janet Lee's mum, Janet Lee, incredibly famous for dying in the opening act of Psycho, um, and. That's uh, that's the connection, and they were right. I mean, it's it's an actual, it's it's beautiful casting, um, for for that to be her debut film role as mm. the 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 daughter of probably the most famous slasher victim in film history at that point. Okay, she, she, I mean, she's fantastic. She's not a. Sometimes you sort of see the progeny of these great actors, and you yes. go, mm, I, I maybe wouldn't have cast them in anything ever. Ever. Um, and this is the product of Tony Curtis and Janet Lee, and she is fabulous, and she still is, is great anytime you see her on screen. Well, yeah, I thought her uh, her acting was a lot more genuine mm-hmm. than oh, boys, you know, <laughs> shit that all the oh, other I ones know. were doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like straight out of drama school, kind yeah. of. Totally. Haven't quite learned how to. I, every time I see that film, and, the, and I, I'm watching, totally, oh, totally, I'm like, I'm actually rooting for you to die now. <laughs> <laughs> Even the bit when she's like having a wee puff of the reef. Mm-hmm. In the, Did you feel that was an authentic puff of the reef? Yeah, like, <laughs> like, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's like this is a like. I imagine she probably did smoke. Right, everyone did. Right, everyone did back then. Yeah. So, but. I gen- you know, she comes across as genuinely somebody who is a complete novice. Yeah, yeah, I I think she is. Um, so yeah, her acting is is good. So it's that combination of, of sort of that brilliant acting, but also that that coding. You know, the fact that, that you know, Rachel said, you know, this is because of who her her mother is, because of the importance of her mother within horror cinema. Really, this is a great kind of uh, casting coup to. Have, achieved and and it is it is spectacular i can't wait to see at this point i'm really looking forward to seeing the new film just to see how how she has progressed is it going to be the same woman mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, now she's back. You know, and, and 40 years on, having watched her and other stuff, you know, um, she'd be really good. She's fabulous. She's just fabulous. I, I, she just seems like somebody you could sit and have a coffee and a chat with. Very yeah. intelligent. Um, so aside from her, there's also Donald Pleasance as the, the other character that you kind of have to talk about, really. That's the, the doctor? Uh, yeah, Sam Loomis, um, who... Sam Loomis was the name of the boyfriend of uh, Marion in Psycho, which is the character played by Janet Lee, and that's why they use that name. Oh, right, okay. so there's, there's, there's lots of little nods to other bits of classic cinema. Nobody ever talks about the fact that the nurse in the car was Marion, but anyway. Yeah, um, but uh, Pleasance wasn't the first choice at all for this film. Right. Uh, so the first choice was apparently Peter Cushing, which made this very nice nod to Hammer films. Uh, but Cushing's agent turned it down allegedly because she didn't think it was getting enough money. It wasn't very good money. Right. Since that did so well, yeah. would they have got more money? Depends. Or would they? Would they well, have? Second uh, choice after after Peter Cushing was Christopher Lee, uh, who also turned it down, and Christopher Lee later went on to say this was the most, uh, the biggest regret of my entire career, because wow. <laughs> <laughs> he would have made a packet. Yeah. Um, I mean, Carpenter took a reduced fee, but he made sure he was in for, is it 10% of the profits? Oh, he did well. That. Didn't he? <coughs> I mean, that's better than getting an actual fee for it, because that mm. film made $70 million at the box office. Yeah, he got 10% of that. His his original fee was 10, uh, I think it was $10,000. Um, so he got to, $7 million. So, so originally he was $10,000 to, uh, to write, direct, and score the film. Ten grand. And if he's taking ten percent of the box office, seven million bucks. Yeah, wow. Producers make a lot of money on these things if they do it well, or if you're on a percentage, which is very hard to get because most people are very aware um, that may be a great thing. But if you're obviously working for a reduced fee and you got a name, you might take a percentage of the film uh, in order so you got a vested interest in it, um, and it's a gamble. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, Sir Chris really felt that it would have been worth his while because Sam Lewis comes back many times until Donald Pleasance died, and then he couldn't. Okay. <laughs> I'm surprised Halloween didn't find a way to resurrect him in some way, but there we are by that point anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, for me, he just—he's just a little bit flat. Yeah, I, I just can't. I mean, I like Donald Pleasance, but in this one, I just struggle a little bit with him. I did want to ask you about the score, as our resident musician. Yes. Did you have any thoughts on the soundtrack to John Carpenter's Halloween? Yes, I know how it goes. <laughs> uh, like, it's okay. It does the job. It has that tension. I did like some of the sound effects that they used, but um, or sort of mood. Mm-hmm. things especially that first scene um, with the little boy looking at his sister and the boyfriend mm-hmm. making out on the you like that on the sofa and then he moves around to the side of the house mm-hmm. because he knocks something down or I can't, I can't remember if that's what happened but then there's like this note that, oh, yeah, that yeah, plays yeah. but like it's really bad like electric keyboard sounds you know, it's 1978. Yeah. I mean, this is 
I, it was a great year. It was a fantastic year like it's, on, it's, in many ways. It's like some mu- good things happen. The music is okay, but then again, it's it's a bit simple. It's a bit repetitive. It's a bit. See, so this is what I love. I think what a lot of people love about Carpenter stuff is, is not only have you got this very barren kind of visual, um, and it's minimalist. It's those the scores. A lot of the scores are like this. They are so restrained and held back, and it's it's about creating a little note of or a little theme of of, of discord. Rachel. I don't ever have opinions on scores. I don't <laughs> notice them. Honestly, this is why I find it really useful to get a musician's take on scores because I genuinely don't notice them. Um, after they're pointed out to me, I go, ooh, that was clever. Um, but I never, I really don't notice. I mean, I I, re- I know the, the theme that everybody talks about, mm. but I have no notion of how it's used cleverly to heighten tension all the way through. Like, uh Anytime he shows up, that's mm-hmm. all you hear. Yeah. Sometimes I wish they would hold it back because he's sort of lurking in the background. You're thinking, if I was in that, I just wouldn't have the score because it's so nice that he's just creeping around in the background. You know background. what I would have, though? I would have, like, really eerie, high-pitched, kind of like a singular tone. Mm-hmm. Just ringing out, like... Yeah, like a Rob Zombie kind of thing he made too. Or was it Marilyn Manson? We used to just, chords like that. Too. Just to create tension. Yeah. Like, I didn't think there was a lot of, an awful lot of tension, uh-huh. like, music-wise. And it, I just, it was a bit, oh, there's that motif again, you know? Uh-huh. Like, it's not bad, it did the job, but I probably would have done it a little bit differently. Well, then the other thing I want to touch on before we wrap, um, point of view. The mm. perspective of the camera within this film. Yes. Which I uh, think we mentioned earlier. Um, that opening shot is very much from a one-person perspective. We we see... <coughs> yeah, but it doesn't do that all the time. No, but we do see a lot... We, we do a number of times see the world from Michael's perspective. Well, it's 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 a male gaze. I mean... It, it very literally is. It is a very literal male gaze. Um yeah, I mean, that's part of... Uh, don't get me wrong, I love that opening sequence. I think it's fantastic. The first time I saw it, I didn't know the reveal was going to be this is a small boy and it was genuinely disturbing to me to um, to have that information withheld. It doesn't actually work when you go back and look at it. It's the, the angle's too high for it to be a small boy when you look at it with the knowledge that mm. it's supposed to be a six-year-old. Um, but it does force the viewer into projecting themselves onto this male um, protagonist. All And and the gaze, um, and I know there's so many, uh, Carol Clover's one that I can think of off the top of my head, so many different theorists point out that um, we are kind of put into the male perspective because that's how you withhold the information from the audience. That's uh, while also giving the audience more information than the characters have. Um, you put them in the perspective of the killer. Um, you can't see the killer. You don't get the information you need in order to feel safe while you're watching the film. It heightens tension. It heightens discomfort because you know you're watching as a predator. Um and, and it also means that we have more information than the, the killer's victims, which we need to have in order to heighten the tension and to have that kind of cathartic release. Um, but it very problematically forces the audience into an identification with uh, a male gaze, a predominantly male gaze, and a male gaze that is intent on inflicting spectacularised violence on a female character. Which is itself not new. 
No, definitely not new. I mean, this is old as Hollywood itself. Um, I mean, I think uh, the most obvious literal kind of example of this would be um, uh, Peeping Tom. (coughs) Peeping Tom is one of the most terrifying films, and I mean that genuinely. Um, I... Even now, it's another one of those ones that has the power to to really creep me out when I think about it. Mm. Um, I remember watching that and and the reveal of why he did the killing and just being genuinely... And I mean, the the actor... I can't Mm. remember the actor's name off the top of my head. That's ridiculous. But it's it's genuinely unsettling, the delivery and and the whole sort of idea behind it. But yeah. I I think Big Big Holmes is one we're going to cover on the show as well at some point. I hope so. I'd love to have the excuse to watch that again. I may have to drag Ben Ryan to the house to make him sit down and watch that one, though. Right, yeah. It's another film that's remarkably lacking in gore. I mean, it had to be. Ruined the director's career. <laughs> Completely ruined the director's career because it was considered so scandalous and so disturbing and horrifying. Um, but it's completely lacking in gore. Right. Different era, though. Sounds I mean, interesting. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating in terms mm. of what it does. Absolutely fascinating. Um, any closing thoughts on, on Halloween or, or the franchise? Um, ben, I'll give it to you first. I don't know anything about the franchise. All I know is about this movie that I just watched. And I like it's not terrible. Would you watch the new one based on this? It depends. I don't know. No, it, it, <laughs> it depends on what, like, if it's like that, mm-hmm. like, gore-wise, yeah, I might watch it okay. I don't like gore I don't like senseless gore just for the sake of the shock factor I don't like that it won't be like that the gore factor has upped as it's gone on but, I'm but, afraid but stay away from the Rob Zombie version oh stay okay. away from that by all it's excessive yeah. and, and very, very violent and aggressive and oh yeah who, who would have thought it from Rob Zombie but yeah oh. if, you, if you haven't watched that I would definitely say go go get yourself a copy and okay. give it a watch it's not bad it's Fent Pierce from Ben I'll take that Rachel yeah I mean I will definitely watch the um, the 40 year Halloween mm-hmm. um, particularly now that I know that it's written H2O out of the, the plot <laughs> that's that's a real win for me um, I genuinely I mean I think it's a it, it's a really interesting film I think um, I can understand the appeal I think it was very special and and um, yeah no I think it I think it's a film that deserves its place in the cinematic canon I guess the last word is up to me oh the joys of being the host <laughs> I, I, look, I think this is a great film um, I still love what it's done with the genre um, I love the influence that it's had and I love its simplicity um, it's very difficult sometimes to talk about a film that you actually do love because it blinds us to some of its flaws and its faults uh, but I think that it was genre redefining um i think that uh, it, it offers us a you know a, a new perspective on on sort of killers and slashers and 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 threat and it raises questions i'm not completely convinced that it's as deeply misogynistic as some argue but i do see that it is problematic and i quite happily concede that point and maybe we'll carry out a conversation about this online so ladies and gentlemen thank you once again for listening um We've got a bunch of shows lined up in the next few weeks, so if you have got your uh, podcast subscriber, get it. If you don't already, subscribe to Cinepunked. Um, check out our website, www.cinepunked.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. Uh, we pop up 
around the country every now and then, live events as well, um, and see what we've got in store over the next few weeks. All that's left for me to do is to thank my colleagues once again. So, Ben. Thank you for listening. Dr. K. Thank you and goodbye. And for me, until the next time, thank you. As a matter of fact, it was.